Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Hope you're having a good day, and we have a lot to talk about. Busy, busy program coming up. We're going to talk with the CEO of the National Potato Council. Cam Quarles will join us. Big uh, dispute has been going on for some time between the U.S. and Mexico over potatoes. It looks like that's been resolved. looks like uh, we're going to be able to uh, send more fresh potatoes into the Mexico. We'll get the very latest on that and what that means moving forward. That's coming up on our program. Also today, conversation with Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack. We'll talk about the 30 by 30 plan. We'll talk about the tax proposals by the Biden administration. What's that going to do to agriculture concerning stepped up basis? And we're going to talk with him about what is the administration's approach to all these climate goals that are being set. Will the administration for agriculture, use a carrot or a stick, voluntary or mandatory approach. We'll talk about that with Secretary Vilsack. And then also coming up on our program today, a look at how animal feed is a key to fighting animal disease. That's coming up on our program today as well. But we're going to start it off with some news concerning biodiesel. We're joined now by the CEO of the National Biodiesel Board, Donnell Rehagen, with the uh, results of a new study that shows switching to biodiesel results in significant health benefits. Donnell, thanks for joining us. Tell us about this study. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a breakthrough study for us. You know, we've always known that biodiesel uh, offers a lot of great environmental benefits, right? We reduce GHG, uh, greenhouse gases, by over 80%. But what does that really mean? And so this study is taking those environmental impacts and those environmental improvements and driving them down to something that we all care about, which is our own health. And it looks like the study indicates that we're talking about a decrease in cancer risk, fewer premature deaths, and reduced asthma attacks, so significant health benefits. Yeah, you're exactly right, Mike. Yeah, this study looked at about 13 locations, so this is a, still a small sampling when you look at the United States. We looked at locations like New York City, Boston, Massachusetts, Long Beach, California, Portland, Oregon. So again, 13 uh, communities, and this study was able to look at the impact at the neighborhood level, which is a hugely important thing. We're not talking about the state or those entire cities. We're talking about neighborhoods within those regions that are most impacted by by the dirty air that the, that's around them. And you're exactly right. This study found in those 13 uh, communities over 230,000 reduced asthma attacks, over 340 premature deaths that uh, uh, were allowed, and then 11, over 1,100 uh, fewer cancer burdens. So it's a huge impact. And when you start thinking about human health, that's what makes life worth living, right? Makes makes people happy, uh, makes people healthy, and so uh, we're excited to be able to present that data. Yeah, this study really quantifies the health benefits of of uh, renewable fuels like biodiesel. It makes me think back to the early days of biodiesel, and I remember going to different demonstrations uh, when school buses were using uh, going to biodiesel, and we talked about the the the, the uh, 
tailpipe emissions, how much healthier it was going to be, you know, we, especially around kids. I mean, this we've kind of taken it uh, well beyond that, but uh, that it's always been part of the uh, the picture here, right? Part of the benefit package of using biodiesel health benefits. Yeah, it absolutely has, and your example is really a good one. You know, that proximity of people to those emissions um, and that, that close proximity is where those most of those lives are impacted. So when we looked in our study at a location like Long Beach, California, which is the la- largest port in the United States, so you have truck traffic in and out of there. You, you have diesel equipment moving uh, shipping containers, and you have ships coming and going out of there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can imagine what the impact is on the communities, the people that live right around those ports. And so we looked at that as well as on the East Coast, looking at the impact in the heating oil. When you have people burning, in essence, diesel fuel in their, in their homes, uh, replacing that with a, a B100 biodiesel has a significant impact there as well. This is an exciting time, I think, for biodiesel. Uh, we see the demand growing for soy oil, so it, that's a big part of it. Uh, these climate goals, um, your position to help meet them right now, not something in the future, but right now. I mean, some are saying this could be similar to what we saw with ethanol a few years ago, where the market just really takes off. What do you think? Well, I think we're exactly there. I think a lot of uh, Americans are now uh, convinced that we can do better. Uh, We can definitely do better in our energy, whether it's our on-road transportation fuels or the fuels that heat, heat our homes. We can do better environmentally, and we can just we can just do better. And you're right, biodiesel is here and available now. Um, as you know, there's been lots of talk about electrification and way, other ways of reaching these clean energy goals. And, uh, you know, we support all of those. But the, the difference between us and electrification, as an example, is we are here today, as you mentioned. And so when you start looking at these deaths and these uh, health benefits that can be achieved starting tomorrow with biodiesel, our point is why would we wait 10 or 20 years for electrification to produce maybe those same results when we can start producing them tomorrow? You've set some aggressive goals uh, for increase in use of biodiesel. And I think when you set them, uh, some kind of wondered, can we meet those? I think with the way things are developing now on these climate goals, uh, I th- it, it sure looks like the door is open now to, to meet and maybe even go beyond some of those. Uh, I think you're right, Mike. And you're talking about our 6 billion, gallon, uh, of, 6 billion gallons of biomass-based diesel by 2030, so that's 10 years from now. We're about 3 billion gallons today, so that we believe that to be a pretty aggressive goal to double the size of our industry in 10 years. But we are certainly seeing market pulls. Uh, demand for our product um, is going much faster than we anticipated, and obviously these carbon reduction goals uh, that we're seeing do- talked about, not just at the national level in Washington, D.C., but l- literally in state houses around the country, states like New Mexico, Colorado, uh, Minnesota are all looking at these similar types of programs, and that market draw is probably going to push us into six billion gallons of production, maybe well before 2030. Well, there have been a lot of ups and downs in the history of biodiesel, but this one looks looks like we're in an up period right now. Very exciting times, Donnell. Thank you for joining us, and uh, we look forward to talking again soon about a lot of uh, good things happening for biodiesel. Thank you very much. 
All right. Thank you, Mike. Donnell Rehagen, CEO of the National Biodiesel Board. So you've got all kinds of positive news around renewable diesel, biodiesel, uh, the health benefits of it, and the way it can help us reach these climate goals that are being set right now. And can, as, as we said, can, can help reach those right now, not something that has to be developed in the future. Well, a big announcement. There's been a big, huge trade dispute, as we've talked about before, between the U.S. and Mexico over potatoes. Looks like it's been resolved. Looks like good news for U.S. potato growers. We'll talk with Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council, next on AOA. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, diesel that doesn't mess around. One of the higher risk aspects of farming is crop protection application. With label changes, regulations, equipment maintenance, and drift management, it's a lot of risk. And a great way to manage it is to rely on your local FS and FS crop applicators. They constantly train to keep up with the latest label changes, regulations, and best practices. So your crop is protected and risks reduced. Contact your local FS to learn more about our custom application programs. It's one more way FS is bringing you what's next. A cold front can slow the world to a crawl. But with Cenex Premium Diesel, your fleet can power through. Cenex Roadmaster XL Seasonally Enhanced comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn, optimizing cold weather performance over typical number two diesel. So rather than complaining about the cold, own it with Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, we're joined by Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. First of all, with the labeling issue on E15, uh, for those not familiar with what's going on here and what you're wanting from EPA, kind of bring us up to date on this. The EPA did, in January, finally release a proposal where they are proposing to make changes to the E15 label that is currently required on pumps that are dispensing E15. But the label would make you think just the opposite, that somehow the majority of vehicles cannot and you you need to be warned to not use it. That's kind of the impression it leaves. That's right. And in fact, there's a strong argument that maybe a label isn't even needed anymore Right. because you're right. 95% of the vehicles on the road today are legally approved by EPA to use E15. The vehicle has to be a model year 2001 or newer vehicle. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. 
Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Mexico's top court issued a five to nothing ruling this week that would allow the Mexican government to follow through on a promise to lift the barrier to imports of U.S. fresh potatoes. Here to tell us about it is Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. Cam, last time we talked, you explained how this has been a long running battle between the U.S. and Mexico over potatoes. Uh, it, it looks like this is really good news. Is this the outcome you hoped for? Uh, absolutely, Mike. Yeah, I, I think the last time we talked, we were very concerned that we may never get to this place. But a 5 nothing ruling, a unanimous ruling by the Mexican Supreme Court, it effectively wipes away the legal barriers that had kept us effectively out of the vast majority of the Mexican market for the last seven years. And we think um, that uh, with the good work of USDA and USTR and their Mexican counterparts, our access can be reinstated within a matter of months. So we're, we're pretty optimistic about what this, this may mean. You know, we're not, we're not there yet. We're not to the finish line yet, but this was an essential step and uh, it's great. We got to this place. What happened? What changed? Because when we talked last, you, you kind of th- thought this might drag out a while longer. What, uh, what brought it about, do you think? I, Mike, I, you know, I, in looking back on it, I think um, the, the, the relentless, uh, unwavering support of Secretary Vilsack, um, uh, Ambassador Tai. Uh, all of the folks at USTR and USDA, the folks down in the embassy in Mexico City, um, they, you know, through, and it's not just the current administration, this goes through multiple administrations. Uh, the U.S. position never, never wavered. And I, I think as folks saw that the Supreme Court, they would put this on the docket and then pull it off. And they, they'd get under a huge amount of, of uh, domestic political pressure and then they'd pull it off again. And I think those kind of head fakes got folks very concerned here in Washington, and um, they started um, they they started uh, making it very clear that this trade dispute, 20-year-long trade dispute, has to get resolved. It it was so clearly in violation of Mexico's commitments under the USMCA that it you know it's it's hard to get to the other issues if you can't solve this very simple one. We're talking with Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. All right, Cam, uh, if indeed this gets finalized, what does it mean for U.S. potato growers? What's the market potential there in Mexico? It's really substantial. Um, we, we estimate uh, likely about $150 million to $200 million uh, a year um, market for U.S. fresh potatoes. And to give you a kind of a relative scale, that would, that would increase U.S. potato exports by roughly 10 to 15 percent overall. So just this, this one, getting this one dispute behind us could really make a huge difference across all of those 
family farms across the United States. And also, if you remember, Mike, seven years ago, we had for a very brief, like three-week window, we had access to Mexico before these lawsuits happened. Uh, during that time, the price of potatoes at retail in Mexico dropped substantially and the quality improved um, because you had U.S. potatoes flowing in there. Um, the, the, the price for Mexican consumers got to be a much better place. So we think the benefits of this are, are they're, they're not just, it's not a one-sided deal. This is going to benefit a lot of folks on both sides of the border. Now, nothing, I guess, happens in a vacuum when it comes to trade. There's another crop that may be impacted by this. So what, tell us about that. Yeah, when this all started 20 years ago, Mike, it was really uh, um, it, it was a kind of a mutually beneficial agreement. Um, uh, Mexico wanted to export avocados to the U.S., and we wanted to send fresh potatoes to Mexico. Um, uh, Mexico has obviously built a, a huge market here for their avocados, but they only come from one, um, uh, mainly from one production area, Michoacan. They've looked they, they've wanted to have other production areas come online. Uh, US, USDA has said that they would consider that, but um, they, clearly there had to be a resolution in this potato issue before they would take that step. If we see that, um, that we're actually getting some durable access to the consumer markets in, um, in, in Mexico, I, I, I think USDA will probably look favorably on um, – uh, working with the Mexican avocado producers to expand their access. But it really, it, this is going to be a, a, a deal where we rise and fall together. Um, I, I don't think, um, it, it's going to be kind of a trust but verify um, based on the, on the past 20 years of how this thing has gone before we take that step. But no doubt, and even though it's not finalized yet, this is a huge win, it looks like, for U.S. potato growers. It It absolutely is. This was... In order to get the access we needed, this was a fundamental step that needed to be taken. I don't, I don't think anybody wanted to go down the USMCA route. It's just more time and cost. Um, so th this was the, the, the most rapid, um, the most rapid uh, uh, way to get to a solution. Now uh, we just need to work with USDA, USTR, and their Mexican counterparts to bring the whole thing home. Um, what does it mean... And I'm not familiar with the pricing structure for potatoes. Uh, what's it mean for growers? Obviously, increased demand. What what could that mean market-wise for them as far as the price that they're going to receive? Yeah, I, you know, it's obviously you've got a lot of variables involved there. You know, COVID right now and all those kinds mm -hmm. of things. Um, it, you know, we're. I can just tell you generally about the U.S. Um, potato industry. We export about 20 percent of um, our crop on an annual basis in a normal year. Um, the so having uh, a, this additional really substantial market um, is clearly going to have a, a, a positive impact not only for the export dependent growers but also for the growers who may not be exporting, it's going to mean uh, less potatoes in the U.S. market that's impacting their, um, their opportunities. So uh, we, we think it's going to be um, uh, a, a very significant and beneficial um, deal when it finally gets concluded. Looking at the domestic market, are you seeing uh, a rebound from 
COVID are as restaurants start opening slowly opening up in places and people slowly start getting back out to eat out again uh do you see the domestic demand growing yeah i I think we're we're seeing that there's a there's a clear steady uptrend on the on the charts um and you know i can feel it here i I, as you know mike i'm 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 based in the um in the substantial agricultural area of downtown washington dc which probably isn't (laughs) tremendously helpful for production agriculture but you know i can see traffic is picking up um uh, on the roads uh you you can see restaurants popping open uh and uh, a lot more people out and about clearly we're on an upswing and you know that's what that's what we need. The the as we talked um, when the pandemic was first hitting, Mike, sixty percent or better of our business is in food service. And so when those restaurants, hotels, cruise ships, all those kinds of things are shut down, it, it's got a, an overweighted Im- negative impact on our on on our our farmers. So uh, we we need to see this reopening continue. Baked potatoes, French fries, uh, coming back, right? Absolutely, absolutely. There's uh, um, there as as long as it's a U.S. potato, it's all good. You, you can prepare it <laughs> any way you'd like. All right, Cam. Thanks a lot. Uh, great uh, news for the potato industry. Uh, we look forward to this being finalized between the U.S. and Mexico. Um, then on to the on to other challenges, right? Yes, sir. We've always we've always it's agriculture. We've always got another challenge, but we'd love to get this Let, one behind us. All right. Thank you, Cam. Good to talk with you. You too. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Cam Quarles, CEO of the National Potato Council. All right, coming up next, conversation with Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack. We're going to get into a number of areas, including uh, these tax proposals by the Biden administration, agriculture concerned about elimination of stepped-up bases. We keep hearing how the administration will protect farmers and ranchers. And Secretary Vilsack will explain how he thinks that will take place. Also, his thoughts on this 30 by 30 plan, which some call a land grab by the government. He says that's not the case. How will they get 4 million more acres in CRP? How are they going to attract those acres? And will the administration use a carrot or stick approach, voluntary or mandatory, to meet these climate goals? All that coming up in my conversation with Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack next on AOA. Cenex Premium Diesel comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn to optimize performance in all engines. When it comes to the crops you plant, we know that you want to maximize the yield of each seed. In order to do that, you need every plant to emerge on the same day. The problem is, you don't know if this is actually happening. We understand what it's like to be in the cab at harvest, wondering why a field is yielding lower than expected, which is why we're offering you our free emergence flagging kit. Here's how it works. Go to precisionplanting.com forward slash free and request your free emergence flagging kit. We'll send you a kit that includes multiple colored flags, a seed digger, and instructions. The first day your plants start coming up, follow the kit instructions to flag the new emergers each day. You'll gain a much clearer picture of how consistently your plants are emerging. Get your free emergence flagging kit today at precisionplanting.com forward slash free. Don't wait. 
Kits are limited. That's precisionplanning.com forward slash free for your free emergence flagging kit. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. After a volatile day yesterday, we are seeing mixed trade this morning. Eyes are on planting prospects in the U.S. and dry Brazilian corn crop areas. On the Board of Trade, July corn trading seven cents higher at 6.55 and a fraction. The December contract up a penny and a half cent at 5.47 and three quarters. For soybeans, the November contract trading a fraction higher at 13.19 and a fraction. The July contract down six and three quarters at 14.95 and a half cent for wheat. Chicago wheat July trading eight and a half cent lower at 7.20 and a half cent. Kansas City wheat July down seven and a half cent at 6.87. Minneapolis spring wheat July down a half a cent at 7.44. The May contract up three cents at 7.38 and a half cent. Cattle rejected the lows on Thursday, but futures may drift Friday as it is the end of the week and the April live cattle contract is ending trade. Futures have developed a side trading pattern. Hogs may take another run at the highs after closing. The chart gaps left in June and July contracts. Demand is strong and supplies are tightening. On the Board of Trade, August lean hogs trading $1.30 higher at $103.97. The July contract up $1.27 at $107.52. For feeders, the August contract up $0.05 cents at $149.92. The September contract up $0.27 at $151.90. For live cattle, the June contract down $42 at $115. 62. The August contract up 12 cents at 117.50. In cash cattle country, it's quiet to start this morning, and it looks like the bulk of business is essentially done for the week. We may see a little cleanup trade trickle in as the day progresses. Asking prices for cattle left on show lists are around 119 to 120 dollars in the south, and 192 to 193 dollars in the north. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture for the American Ag Network. I'm Kirsten Rall. Do you know how to keep food safe at home? Clean, separate, cook, and chill. The easy lessons of clean, separate, cook, and chill will help you protect your family and be food safe. Clean. Wash hands and utensils to avoid spreading bacteria when preparing food. Separate. Use different cutting boards for meat, poultry, seafood, and veggies. Cook. You can't tell it's done by how it looks. Always use a food thermometer. Chill. Keep the fridge at 40 degrees or below to keep bacteria from growing. Food safety risks at home are more common than most people think. The USDA is your partner in being food safe. Clean, separate, cook, and chill. For more information, visit BeFoodSafe.gov or call 1-888-MP-HOTLINE. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cinex Premium Diesel. Cinex Premium Diesel, a more complete additive package for a more complete burn. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Joining us now is Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack. Mr. Secretary, thank you for being with us. Uh, Let's start right off with a hot issue right now, uh, the president's proposals for spending programs and uh, some concerns in the ag community about uh, changes in taxes to pay for them, especially when it comes to stepped-up basis. Talk about eliminating that. It's been a big, very important issue for agriculture. 
what what do you want uh, folks in the ag community to know about what the president is proposing and how this would it could impact them? Well, Mike, as uh, as you know, uh, stepped up basis has been around for quite some time, and uh, there have always been concerns about it and about a state tax. The White House understood and appreciated uh, the unique situation that we find with farm families. Uh, it's a little bit different than a business. It's a little bit different than just about any other creature from a tax standpoint, where many farmers are, are as they say out in the countryside, land rich and cash poor. Uh, and it makes it very difficult if they're faced with a large tax bill. Uh, White House listened uh, and first and foremost made no change in the estate tax or the gift tax. So uh, the, the rules and regulations for that, uh, which basically provide a, a great deal of opportunity to, to uh, transfer uh, farms uh, unchanged. Uh, and at this point in time, very, very, very few farms, have, they have to be very, very large before an estate tax is assessed. Uh, on the stepped up basis, the folks understood that if the farm stays in the family and it continues to be operated, uh, there is no uh, tax due. Uh, the stepped up basis doesn't get triggered. Uh, the capital gains doesn't get triggered. Uh, if by chance uh, the farmer uh, and spouse decide to sell the farm, then there would be a, a $2 million uh, exemption, each individual having a million dollars. There's also a $500,000 exemption if the farm uh, house, if the homestead is located on the farm. So up to $2.5 million of, of gain is not subject to tax. Uh, and that covers about 98.5% of the farming operations in the country today. The ones that aren't covered are, are the ones that would be owned by folks like Bill Gates and uh, the, the very, 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 very wealthy folks uh, if they have to pay the tax then there is a 15-year period in which they can pay the tax back um, at a very low interest rate. Let me ask you about the 30 by 30 plan, as it is being called. Uh, some critics of it have called, or skeptics of it, have called it a land grab. You push <laughs> back against that. Uh, ex what do you want uh, folks, especially in agriculture, to know about this plan? I think what people are going to find is that a lot of the concerns, a lot of the fears are unfounded. Uh, this simply is not going to be a situation where land is going to be taken away from anyone. In fact, what you're going to find uh, in the principles that are laid out in the plan is probably a commitment to private land ownership, probably a commitment to conservation, probably a commitment to working collaboratively with local and regional conservation efforts, uh, all of which is happening today in the countryside. This is just reaffirming it. Uh, and, and I know out in the West in particular, uh, there are concerns about this, but I think what what folks will find is actually uh, in terms of the ability to use public lands uh, on a lease basis that this process is actually going to strengthen the capacity to do that because farmers are engaged in conservation. And I think what we simply want to see is more of that kind of activity taking place on lands, both public and private. Uh, but it's going to be voluntary. Uh, it's going to be uh, conservation oriented. Uh, there's not going to be a takings involved in this at all. Uh, and I think people will be reassured. Um, I hope people understand and appreciate there is sensitivity uh, in the White House to the important role that farm families play. And I, I think you see this throughout. You see it in the American Jobs Plan uh, with resources for climate smart agriculture, for expansion of broadband, for bio-based manufacturing, all of which play to the strengths of American agriculture. You, you even see it in the rescue plan. Uh, where billions of dollars are going to be spent and invested in making sure the supply chain is resilient. Uh, and even to the extent that we're enhancing and increasing nutrition, to the extent that we are able to have people buy more at the grocery store, ultimately that's also going to benefit farmers. So I think, uh, I hope people see that there is a concerted effort on the part of this administration to understand precisely what farmers need. They need more markets, they need better markets, and they need new markets. And uh, the administration is trying to, to provide all of that.
you're trying to attract more acres into the conservation reserve program, a goal of maybe 4 million more acres. Uh, the question has become, are there 4 million acres out there that you would consider environmentally sensitive uh, that, you know, really need to be in a program like CS CRP, I'm sorry, rather than taking productive land out of production at a time when market prices are high. What are your thoughts about trying to track that many acres into the program? Well, I, I think there's a combination of a number of things that could be utilized to make it attractive enough so folks have a choice. At the end of the day, Mike, this is about creating choices and options for farm families. The reality is that even though prices are high today, they sure as heck haven't been high for the last five years. And everyone knows that what goes up comes comes down, especially in farming. Uh, so we want to make sure that there are many options here. This is not as if we're going to enlist and enroll 4 million acres tomorrow. Uh, this is going to be over a period of time. The, obviously, the focus will be on highly erodible lands. But there's also an opportunity to incent climate-smart agricultural practices with the with the CRP program. Uh, there's an opportunity with the SHIP program uh, in the Upper Plains area to provide some flexibility uh, within CRP that might be attractive uh, to folks. Uh, and so I think there are a series of ways in which we have structured, provided incentives, provided increased rental rates, but not putting it in a situation where uh, we make it too difficult uh, on the other side of the, of the balance sheet, if you will, in terms of raising rental rates for land access. So uh, it's a it's a tough balance, no question, but uh, I think it's one that we, we struck well, uh, and I anticipate and expect that we're going to see over time a, a number of, of acres that need to be in a program like that uh, going into the program, a number of opportunities to expand climate-smart agriculture. And of course, with that all comes the habitat, the outdoor recreational opportunities, uh, the better water quality uh, that you get when you have... Uh, opportunities like this, and you also obviously do right by by the climate. So uh, I think it's a, a good opportunity for us, and certainly one tool, one tool um, of many tools that we're going to try to utilize uh, to try to encourage more options uh, for farmers and, and better outcomes for farmers. As the climate goals have been announced, uh, many have wondered, especially in agriculture, what the approach would be to achieve these goals for agriculture would it be a voluntary approach, which agriculture, of course, as you know, favors, or more of a mandatory, a carrot or stick type of approach. Uh, what can you say to farmers and ranchers across the country about this administration's approach to reaching these goals? There's no question that we believe there are enough market avenues, market opportunities that can be created and can be supported uh, that will allow us to uh, move towards the goals that uh, the president has announced, both for 2030 and 2050. Uh, agriculture has a role to play in meeting the U.S. Uh, Paris climate uh, requirements uh, by 2030, and we certainly have a role to meet uh, to the president's vision of a net zero emission agriculture. We have a very good sustainability story to tell. We need to tell it, but we need to enhance it. Uh, and I think to the extent that we em embrace the opportunities that climate presents for market, uh, science-based, uh, incentive-based uh, programs, I think farmers will respond and react accordingly, and I think we will meet the goals uh, the administration has set. Um, and I think that's going to be a good thing from a marketing perspective. So it, it's not, uh, from my perspective, it's about providing incentives, providing choice, providing options, uh, providing a multitude of ways in which farmers can can benefit. It might be uh, uh, something on crop insurance. It might be, uh, uh, you know, assistance for sequestering carbon. It might be enhanced conservation benefits for certain climate smart agricultural practices. It might be uh, figuring out how to convert uh, manure uh, uh, into a variety of different products and create that as a product and a, a commodity, if you will. It may be all of that. It may be additional processing opportunities uh, that also open up markets uh, and create options. So this is all about more, better, and new markets, Mike, and and I think uh, I think farmers will respond to it. 
There's been a lot of talk about carbon markets and the opportunities for revenue streams for farmers. You've acknowledged that we're not there yet as far as having those markets built out and ready to go. How long do you see that taking and what role do you see USDA playing in that? There are markets that exist, but agriculture really hasn't participated in large part because the markets aren't designed and engineered for for farmers. Uh, they're very complex. There's a lot of hassle. Uh, the price isn't necessarily enough to make you want to go through the hassle. And so uh, agriculture has not been responsive to, to, to those uh, market opportunities. If we're going to do this, we need to figure out and we need to listen to farmers, which we're doing right now. We're receiving input from farmers. We had, uh, I think, over 1,600 comments to the uh, Federal Registry set of questions that we outlined uh, to folks. We had a series of small group meetings with uh, key farm leaders, uh, all designed to give us better understanding of what it would take, what farmers are looking for, why farmers aren't participating in existing markets. We're getting a good sense about this. So you, you then ask yourself, okay, can you structure a program um, that would be uh, uh, of interest to farmers? And I think the answer is, yes, we could. Um, how would you do it? Well, uh, that's still to, yet not to be determined or yet to be determined. Are we going to put a price on the, the uh, sequestration uh, of carbon? Are we going to provide the resources for farmers to take the actions on the, front, on the farm that would result in reduced emissions uh, and carbon sequestration? All of that is yet to be decided. And then once you do it, I, th- I don't think you start in a very large, huge program. I think you start in a relatively uh, manageable program that allows you to, to kind of figure out what works and what doesn't work, learn to walk before you run, uh, and then over time, I think you build the case uh, for a greater commitment and you build the support uh, and the momentum and the interest in a bigger program. Uh, so it's it's a small, you know, a small step, uh, learn from that small step, build over time and create yet another option for farmers. Uh, it may be that we end up saying, here's X number of dollars for this particular uh, activity on the farm. Uh, so you don't have to, it won't be a cost share kind of thing. It'll be, you know, the, the government basically saying, here's a resource go do it. Or it may be, here's a price we're going to put on every ton of carbon that you're able to sequester. Uh, Or it could be some combination of that. It could be something that needs to be not only beneficial to large farm holdings, but also for that small and medium-sized operator to also see, hey, that program is designed or has a place for me. Um, It won't be easy. uh, But I think, again, our goal, more new and better, uh, we've got to figure out ways in which we can increase the revenue opportunities for farms. Mr. Secretary, we appreciate your time. As always, thank you for joining us. You bet, Mike. All right, stay with us. More coming up here on AOA. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. Cenex Premium Diesel, diesel that doesn't mess around. Do you know how to keep food safe at home? Clean, separate, cook, and chill. The easy lessons of clean, separate, cook, and chill will help you protect your family and be food safe. Let's talk about how to chill. First, keep the fridge at 40 degrees or below to keep bacteria from growing. Use an appliance thermometer to be sure things are cool. Then, chill leftovers and takeout foods within two hours and divide food into shallow containers for fast cooling. And always thaw meat, poultry, and seafood in the fridge, not on the counter, and never overstuff the fridge. Food safety risks at home are more common than most people think. The USDA is your partner in being food safe. Clean, separate, cook, and chill. 
For more information, visit BeFoodSafe.gov or call 1-888-MP-HOTLINE. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Every Tuesday, we're sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS, where we'll be talking with folks from throughout the cooperative system. Join us as we discover what makes cooperatives unique when there are more options to do business with than ever before. We'll learn how farmers and ranchers like you benefit from a system where decisions are made by the members that own it. Tune in every Tuesday for Around the Table or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Recently on Adams on Agriculture, we're joined now by Ethan Lane, Vice President, Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, with the talk about sustainability and reducing carbon footprints and things like that. Where does the beef industry stand in all this? We have this sort of push and pull with the environmental community on this topic because they always tend to pull from international climate numbers and carbon emission numbers when talking about the U.S. cattle industry. We're a fraction of those global numbers, so when we get into some of these conversations, it's critical that there is an understanding of the fact that the U.S. cattle production system is the gold standard in the world, less than 2% of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States relative to 145 or 15% globally for livestock production. What we do is the most efficient means of cattle production in the world across 600 million acres of the U.S. landmass, and we do it upcycling inedible proteins that also create habitat for wildlife and do all these other things for ecosystem services. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. When it comes to the crops you plant, we know that you want to maximize the yield of each seed. In order to do that, you need every plant to emerge on the same day. The problem is, you don't know if this is actually happening. We understand what it's like to be in the cab at harvest, wondering why a field is yielding lower than expected, which is why we're offering you our free emergence flagging kit. Here's how it works. Go to precisionplanting.com forward slash free and request your free emergence flagging kit. We'll send you a kit that includes multiple colored flags, a seed digger, and instructions. The first day your plants start coming up, follow the kit instructions to flag the new emergers each day. You'll gain a much clearer picture of how consistently your plants are emerging. Get your free emergence flagging kit today at precisionplanning.com forward slash free. Don't wait. Kits are limited. That's precisionplanning.com forward slash free for your free emergence flagging kit. A cold front can slow the world to a crawl, but with Cenex Premium Diesel, your fleet can power through. Cenex Roadmaster XL Seasonally Enhanced comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn, optimizing cold weather performance over typical number two diesel. So rather than complaining about the cold, own it with Cenex Premium Diesel. 
Cenex Premium Diesel. Diesel that doesn't mess around. Adams on Agriculture brought to you by Cenex Premium Diesel. With Cenex Premium Diesel, you can count on a diesel that will keep your operation in top shape. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. The battle against livestock diseases is an ongoing one. Uh, precautions constantly being taken. And we know that the, well, you look at a disease like African swine fever and the, what damage it has caused in China and many other places. Fortunately, we've been able to keep it out of the U.S., but we've had our share of uh, uh, diseases here in this country as well. It's an ongoing battle. Uh, a lot of it maybe uh, an area to really focus on is in feed. And let's talk about that now. Our next guest is Dr. Enrique Montiel. He is Director of Nutrition and Live Production for Anatox. Dr. Montiel, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Oh, let's talk about the the importance of, uh, of feed, clean feed in preventing diseases. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, how important this is and and the precautions that need to be taken? Well, you know, a very important role of a veterinarian like I am is to prevent diseases before they actually hit any animal production operation. And uh, diseases can come in many different routes. It may be in, in shoes, uh, people that walked outside and brought it back. It may be uh, in vehicles, but it also may come in through the field. And there has been uh, several different investigation research work that has shown that important diseases, like you mentioned before, African swine fever and others like salmonella can enter the livestock through feed. So not all pathogens come in the same way, right? There are different ways they can. So that's why uh, there's a certain vulnerability here. We try to reduce that as much as we can. Yes. Uh, normally, at the farm level, you try, as a producer, to create an environment where your animals are shielded or protected from the outside. However, uh, disease agents can still penetrate that shield or that uh, protection of the biosecurity you established. Uh, can can enter through uh, several different conduits uh, or uh, vectors of vehicles. It can be through birds, it can be through people, it can be through contaminated equipment. Uh, one aspect of it that is normally forgotten is that it can enter through the feed because uh, the different ingredients that are used in the feed may be contaminated with disease agents. And uh, uh, nowadays in the U.S., we even use some imported uh, raw materials that come from countries that have catastrophic diseases like, for example, again, African swine fever. Um, these agents can survive in the feed ingredients, can survive in feed, and come to infect our livestock. I think that's an important point. Those disease agents can survive in feed over a period of time. So uh, you might think there's not a problem, but it could show up later because those uh, agents are still in that feed. 
Correct. And by the time you start seeing the disease in your animals, it's too late. The, the main effort has been in prevention. And regarding feed, uh, today there are, there are technologies that you can use to disinfect feed. Uh, a lot of times the, the feed in the process of manufacturing is heated to eliminate pathogens. That heating would eliminate the pathogens at the time the heat is applied to the feed. Now, there's other ways where you can do what is called feed sanitation, and uh, you can apply a feed sanitation product to the feed or the feed ingredients, and that would prevent the feed from disseminating disease agents into livestock. So are we becoming more aware then of how these pathogens like salmonella, uh, how they are moving through things like feed and, and taking the steps then to prevent that from happening? Yes. Uh, uh, recently, uh, there's been an increasing awareness of the role that feed can uh, do as what is called a fomite, which is a potential vehicle to transmit disease. And uh, this awareness has come uh, several different ways. One is from the knowledge that different feed ingredients can be contaminated separately or the finished feed can be contaminated as well. So uh, the industry has become a lot more conscious and a lot more aware. Different segments of uh, meat production and the swine and the poultry are probably first in the least have become uh, aware that the feed can be a vehicle for disease and actively work in uh, implementing feed sanitation procedures that would prevent it. So as I said before, the, the, the battle against livestock disease and keeping diseases out, that's an ongoing battle, and it takes many different forms. And feed, uh, clean feed, proper feed, uh, being aware of what's in that feed, that's a big step in preventing these diseases. Yes, there's, there's big efforts, and uh, the, the effort is not only in terms of work, but also monetary. I mean, is uh, money and work uh, spent every year in biosecurity uh, to keep diseases out of your livestock. Uh, however, uh, the feed is a factor that is probably coming more into the picture now, into the... Um, into the uh, the different factors that can bring disease into your flocks. Because you do all these efforts to shield your operation from the outside. The feed goes through sort of like a Trojan horse. with Whatever mm-hmm. it could contain, if it's not sanitized, and can potentially bring diseases that can be devastating to your livestock. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting point and something that... Uh, and maybe we haven't thought as much about in when in the bigger picture of preventing animal disease. Thank you, Dr. Montiel, for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Mike. All right. Dr. Enrique Montiel is the uh, Director of Nutrition and Live Production for Anatox. All right. That wraps up for today and for the week. Thanks for joining us here on AOA. Cenex Premium Diesel comes with a more complete additive package for a more complete burn to optimize performance in all engines.